Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. This episode is being released on July 7th. We took last week off due to an illness that swept through the entire podcast staff. For more info on that, consult South Park episode number 106. Anyway, we plan to be back to the usual Wednesday release date next week. This week on the podcast, Siam's Gary Sticks discusses his article in the July issue on human migrations. And Editor-in-Chief John Rennie talks about some of the other highlights of the July issue, including an article on the neuroscience of dance. How do you perform a brain scan on somebody doing the tango? Stay tuned. First up, Gary Sticks. He wrote the July cover story on how DNA is revealing all kinds of new info about the history of human migration around the globe. We spoke in the library at Scientific American. Gary, how you doing? Good, Steve. Traces of a distant past. This is really fascinating that each of us carries within every cell of our bodies these clues that relate to the migration of the entire assemblage of humanity from Africa to everywhere that we live today. So how is it possible? I mean, people are used to understanding that if they uh, researchers find fossils or they find civilizations, artifacts, you know, pottery shards and stuff like that. But how is it possible that you take blood samples from people around the world and by looking at the DNA, you can put together this map that dates back tens of thousands of years and describe human migration? It all has to do with the uh, very small variations that we carry among us, uh, 99.9% of uh, human genes are identical among people. But in that tenth of 1%, there are variations that hold clues to where we came from. Can you tell me about what's, what's the nature of the clue? I mean, if I, I'm going to take samples from a population in Japan, another population in Australia another population of Native Americans, another population in Scandinavia, another population in Africa, and most of their DNA is going to be absolutely identical. But how is it that those little differences give me the information that I'm looking for on this human migration front? It relates to the extent of variation in the indigenous populations. There are varying theories about how this works, but the, the prevailing one uh, at this point holds that humans left Africa about 50,000 years ago. And the human populations in Africa contain much more variation than human populations anywhere else. These are the indigenous populations. Obviously, mixture occurs over time. But if you look at uh, a population in Addis Ababa and you compare it to the population, indigenous populations in a place like Buenos Aires in Argentina, there is much greater genetic variation in Africa, in um, Ethiopia, which is really the cradle of humanity, than there is in other places. And what population geneticists see is they see a gradient, a gradually decreasing amount of variation that begins 
from Africa and gradually decreases the farther you get from Africa. So, as I said, the amount of variation that you'd find among indigenous people in Argentina is a fraction, uh, less than half, in fact, of what you would find of uh, African populations. Because presumably that's the last place on Earth that humans colonized. Yes, the humans uh, left Africa and gradually fanned out across Asia to Australia and then up to Europe. And then, say, 15,000 years ago, they uh, crossed over what was then a land bridge to the Americas and gradually worked their way down to South America. And that's all material that the archaeologists and anthropologists had pretty well covered, but the DNA is really confirming that. The DNA confirms that the advantage of using DNA is that there is an endless supply of DNA from human populations, and geneticists come up with new ways of exploiting that DNA. Uh, they can analyze a particular block of DNA. They can analyze individual letters in DNA. They can analyze missing sections of the genome to compare a group in, say, the Americas versus a group in Asia versus a group in Africa or Europe. And uh, just as a concrete example, there's uh, a particular group in Africa that appears to be a remnant of the original humans in Africa that did not leave the continent. And the variability there, because they've been in that one place for such a long time, is very large, whereas the very, I mean, this is what we've said, but I'm just trying to put it in concrete terms. The variability within that population in, say, Argentina is very small. I mean, it's not that one group has evolved more than another group. It's that the variability within one group versus another is either large or small because one has been doing it for 100,000 years and one just arrived 15,000 years ago. Right. And is, and has been, and that's when you start the clock on that intra group variability. Right. So the, and the, the other point is that most geneticists and anthropologists believe that it was a single group. There are estimates of how large that group was. Some believe that it could have been as small as a few hundred people who left, settled in a new area, and then a subset of that group then split off and settled in another area, and then a subset of that uh, subsequent group split off, and this process continued until the whole world was settled. And every so, time you split off, you start the clock again within that group. Right, right. And you, so what you have is a subset of the genome that originated in Africa. And obviously, uh, the um, um, evolution continues, but you're starting the clock with a subset of that original set of genes. Right. Now, you said that there's an endless supply of DNA, but in a way there isn't because our we're, it's, a, it's an interesting situation we're in. The very technology that allows us to do this work has also allowed modern life in general with the ability to just fly across the world, resettle on another continent tomorrow, and mix all those genes up again. 
So our ability to do this research could be severely compromised, let's say, a hundred years from now, because there, there may have been so much mixing of these populations. So we really have to do this research now, don't we? That has been the perspective of uh, uh, a number of population geneticists who have uh, felt that we really need to carry out this research as soon as possible because of globalization, because of the mixing of peoples. That was the reason that in the early 90s, a very well-known population geneticist, Luca Cavalli-Sforza, suggested that at the same time that we begin a human genome project, we begin something called the Human Genome Diversity Project that would go out and collect samples from many, many different indigenous populations from around the world and then have a basis for comparing that uh, genetic diversity, for researching the hypothesis uh, that we're talking about, that humans originated in Africa and gradually spread out with this decreasing genetic diversity. There was a problem with that. Many of the people who they approached were not eager to have their blood samples or to give samples of sputum because they felt that, one, this may be taking something that is intrinsic to their own belief systems, which is uh, there's some groups that believe that taking a blood is, uh, in essence, robbing the soul in some ways. Others had had bad experiences uh, with people coming and wanting to take plants and other types of materials that they had been using and patenting them. Sure, there's been a lot of colonial exploitation in human history. Yeah. And the groups that have traditionally been exploited can be a little leery about any kind of research that involves delving into their pasts and taking actual samples of their bodies. Absolutely. And in fact, some of the strongest resistance came from Native Americans because of their experiences. And we saw... Uh, an example of that with the Kennewick uh, skull that was found. This is this goes back years now, mm-hmm. probably about 12, 13 years. Right. Where the discovery introduced alternative possibilities to the, the standard story within some Native American populations about their origins. And so they, they were resistant to a scientific evaluation. And you have a similar situation now where some groups don't want to hear that they just got to this continent 14,000 years ago. Because within their own belief system, they might think they've always been here. Right. And, uh, I'm, you know, hate to tell you guys, but you weren't. There's some groups that are uh, concerned, or there's some individuals within some groups that are concerned what will be found about their heritage, that... Uh, uh, they may not be of a certain group or that they may have uh, uh, ancestors who came from groups that they weren't aware of. It's like finding out that you were adopted and your birth parents were maybe not the famous and rich movie stars that you were hoping they were. Or that uh, your um, your relatives are... Uh, the very people you grew up hating. Or... the. the Essentially, you're related to everyone, and this is a, a wonderful technique to do historical research. 
adding to the archaeological, the anthropological, and uh, other records. And again, because it's possible to uh, look at DNA samples from people who are alive today, that there is in a way more available than you can find of pottery shards or, or fossils. Or, or fossils uh, and, and that's one of the reasons that uh, people are concentrating so much on this. So there's a really interesting thing that you you talk about a little bit in the article that's going to further inform all this, and that is everybody's heard of the Human Genome Project, but there's a, a second Human Genome Project going on now, the Neanderthal Genome Project. And it looks like it's going to be possible to sequence the genome, or at least parts of it, from fossils of Neanderthals. And what is that going to wind up telling us? Well, I it will tell us uh, something about the origins of the whole human line, not just Homo sapiens, our species, but others as well. But what it will really tell us is a lot about uh, um, ourselves. It will, it will be a comparison, the closest comparison that we can make um, of a closely related species. Because right now the closest related species are chimps right. and gorillas, right. and so we make do with that. But to have the genome of an actual human species that is not us absolutely is a fascinating thing. Right, and one of the major questions that people are going to be looking at is whether such a closely related species actually had interaction and actually made it at any point with humans. Now, there are varying theories about that, and there's some evidence in the um, genetic record that that may have happened, but it's very sparse evidence. And uh, this um, Neanderthal Genome Project should give us a much more definitive answer to that. So we might actually discover that 40,000 years ago, we might have acquired some genes that are now part of the Homo sapien genome that we got from Neanderthals? Yes, and if we got them from Neanderthals, it's quite likely that um, natural selection would have favored those genes. Otherwise, over a period of 40,000 years, they would have disappeared. Well, that's good stuff. Did you, uh, when, you when you were writing this, did, did it make you feel closer to everybody else? I mean, we got we got millions of people in New York City, and they come from all over the world. Did you feel like a new kind of kinship with everyone? Absolutely. One of the um, data points that I would have loved to have put in the article, but I wasn't able to because of space, is that uh, New York City has the most diverse population in the world in wow. terms of different uh, groups. And so... Uh, that's something that I'm constantly aware of uh, when I'm on the subway or when I'm walking to work. New York, New York, Next up, John Rennie on some of the other material in our July issue. We also spoke in the Scientific American Library. New York, New York, it's a visitor's place. Happy July, John. Happy July to you, Steve. This is a uh, another fun-looking issue. I, I 
something of a lot of interest to people who are trying to figure out just just where they fit in in the big picture, the self-organizing quantum universe. I know. Could we have jammed more buzzwords into the title of that? But that's actually what it's about. Um, this is about a proposal some physicists have made uh, to try to come up with a, uh, a theory of quantum gravity. Listeners who follow physics at all may know theories of quantum gravity is, is an attempt to try to pull together general relativity with quantum theory. This is one of the, the big elusive goals for physicists over the, the past century. In the big unified field theory, theory of everything yeah. effort. Exactly right. You know, people are looking for one one theory that would give you a way of, of describing uh, the universe as we know it. Um, one of the best approaches to that in the past has been something like superstring theory, and that's had some success. The problem is that, in, in a sense, it's it's too successful. You can come up with superstring theories that do describe the universe that we would see, but uh, it also comes up with models that would describe uh, versions of the universe that we don't see. So it's not very restrictive that way. But there's this proposal that these physicists have of, a, of an entirely novel take on this, and it's it's based on geometry. Their idea, and watch how I strip away all the physics detail on this, is that if you imagined that space-time, instead of thinking of it as a as a continuum, if you imagine that it consisted of lots of very, very tiny little pieces of space-time, almost like atoms of space-time, and that you then imagine that they interacted in a certain way based on the rules that we know of from relativity and quantum theory, what these physicists have shown is that you end up with a space-time geometry that is just like the one that we do observe. And what's really interesting about that is that unlike the superstring theories, where depending on very tiny changes in your starting suppositions, you end up with completely different types of universes, lots of different starting conditions all bring you back to a universe that looks just like this one. So it's a very new idea. Who knows whether it'll turn out to be the big elusive quantum gravity theory that people want, but it's it's an interesting new idea, and we thought readers would like to know more about it. And once we get that large hadron collider up and running, we might actually get some some real clues that point in one direction or another as to who's on the right track. Yeah, I think that the idea is that you look for more sorts of clues that uh, that will drive you in the right direction. We've got uh, a very interesting article on dancing. Dancing. So you think you can dance, Steve? I actually know that I can't. Well, you're sort of wrong about that, Steve, because the fact is all human beings, even you, have an unusual dancing ability. At least we have an unusual relationship to uh, to music, which is that human beings seem to be the only animals that will spontaneously when they hear music, start to move their bodies in rhythmic time with it. It's very odd. You don't see it under uh, any other mammals. It's not very, even chimps do that. Apparently huh? not, at least according to uh, the authors of this article we have on the neuroscience of dance. This is really interesting for lots of different reasons. People have always been sort of perplexed about why people have this these sort of musical abilities of different sorts. But uh, neuroscientists who look at motion are particularly interested in, in uh, things like this because for years and years we've been studying what happens inside the brain that's involved with relatively simple motions. I make a fist, I move my arm, I kick my leg. We've studied a lot of those kinds of things. And even relatively simple 
actions like, say, walking or running. We've, we've studied what goes on inside the brain. But we also, obviously, all the time, as human beings, engage in some kinds of activities that involve much more complicated, nuanced uh, arrangements of motions, things like dance. So one of the questions people uh, in this field have, have wondered about is whether or not there were any other brain areas, any other kinds of activity in the brain that were associated with those more complicated motions that you didn't see if you looked at just the different individual component mm. motions. Mm -hmm. And uh, th some experiments investigating that are what uh, Stephen Brown and Lawrence Parsons, the uh, uh, authors of this article on the neuroscience of dance, uh, talk about. And they did a really great wonderful experiment i would i would love to have seen this they they recruited amateur tango dancers and they did brain pet scans of them uh, while they were dancing and yeah, how do you okay, do that? Right. Yeah, exactly. So what they did was they, you know, when you, people are, uh, are are being PET scanned, they're actually they they're they're lying on their back with their heads immobilized inside uh, inside the the instrument. So these people they're they're in that position, but the scientists set up sort of like a small dance floorboard underneath their feet, and they were then instructed either to actually execute the 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 leg motions that were associated with dancing the tango uh, as they listened to music or not or in some cases they were told just to contract the muscles in their legs but not to actually move them again sometimes to music and sometimes not and the results were really very interesting um, they they were able to subtract out a lot of the brain activity that was associated with sort of the simple motions and then look just for ones that seem to be associated with music-related motions. And uh, and what you find is that there were several different areas of the brain that do seem to be associated with this. Some of them are in the cerebellum, the area in the back of the brain that's involved a lot with coordinating uh, motions with uh, sensory input from the muscles. Some of them, not too surprisingly, are involved in the, the parietal lobe of the brain, um, which is involved sort of where a lot of uh, uh, the commands to start different motions start, but one of them is also involved in an area of the auditory pathway. Um, so it's really very interesting because the auditory pathway is involved in just processing um, music and processing hearing. You wouldn't think that would ordinarily be involved with motion at all. But apparently that becomes active really only when we are listening to music and synchronizing motions with that. And, uh, in fact, the authors also say that, uh, these studies have even shed, uh, some light on this phenomenon of how when we, when we listen to music and unconsciously start to tap our fingers or, um, uh, that sort of thing, the, the, the reason we do that is because it seems like you're getting sort of a little bit of, of chatter, literally not involving the higher centers of the, centers of the brain between this, uh, this area in this auditory pathway and part of the cerebellum. So really cool, interesting studies, and it sheds a lot of uh, light on, uh, you know, just the phenomenon of dance. That is pretty cool. Is there any evidence as to whether our unique kind of dance abilities are just uh, a byproduct of evolution, or did that connection between hearing and movement really get selected for, for some reason? Well, it's hard to know very much about, you know, sort of the deeper evolutionary uh, uh forces that would bear on that. But what is really interesting is that uh, there are at least suggestions in some of these studies that that maybe do bolster the idea of gestures 
as being a, a, a very important, very old, very deep form of communication, sort of in the same way that speech is. Um, for example, one of the, the things that the authors talk about is, uh, as has been known for a very long time, in the left lobe of the brain, uh, there's an area called uh, uh, the Broca's region, which is involved with the generation of, of speech. And uh, what's interesting is that in the studies, it's turned out that the corresponding area in the right hemisphere, uh, which is not ordinarily involved with speech, becomes active when you're involved in dance. And so uh, given that dance does have a very strong representational communicative element to it. Uh, there's some reason to think that, you know, uh, maybe that this really does bolster the idea that some of the earliest language, maybe even preceding the use of, of speech for communication, uh, was this idea of, of, of movement, of different gestures with our hands and with our legs and moving our whole bodies to communicate things. So very interesting. That I mean, that sort of goes to what you were saying about maybe the deep evolutionary roots of all. Yeah, definitely, especially with, you know, ritual dance being such a big part of pretty much every culture. I'm sure it is every culture on earth. Right. It's a, it's, it's a very fascinating uh, sort of insight into it. And how exactly, you know, explain all of it, we don't really know. But the article has a lot of, of good insights into this. So uh, after a, a, a lull of, I don't know what, 25, 30 years... The Rubik's Cube is making a huge comeback? I know. It's funny. I, I, I don't know if there was an anniversary associated with that recently that uh, that we went through. But, yes, the, uh, the the Rubik's Cube is back in a big way. You see people solving it uh, all the time. And we happen to have an article uh, here in the July issue that uh, that relates to this, to what you might not uh, think of at first, uh, uh, that the Rubik's Cube is a mathematical problem, but it really is. There is a mathematics of the Rubik's Cube. And uh, the authors of uh, this piece simple groups at play uh, discuss how the the Rubik's Cube is an example of a certain kind of permutation problem. And as such, it represents uh, a kind of mathematical exercise in group theory. And what's cool is that they then uh, were then able to show that uh, they they used a slightly different related area of of group theory, um, one in which they were talking about simple sporadic puzzles, and they developed kinds of puzzles based on a different sort of permutation. Um, and they have examples of these that they describe in the article, and in fact, if you go to uh, Scientific American's website, uh, www.siam.com, uh, you can find uh, puzzles that we've uh, are they're based on the mathematics of this, and uh, you can try them for yourself. Pretty cool. I remember when the Rubik's Cube made its first splash... And uh, I think it was a chemist who uh, wrote a solution, uh, published a solution based on group theory at the time. And that became a best-selling small book because people who read it and followed the simple directions could then very easily solve the Rubik's Cube. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing that the, it's, for those of us who've never solved the Rubik's Cube, and I am, I am one of those people. Um, I got half of one face. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it turns out that fundamentally it is, it is a problem of applying a certain mathematical set of, of, uh, permutations to this, a certain set of, of movements over and over and over again until you get the, uh, the desired response. Um, but it's, you know, it's very interesting. Details about all of this in the July issue. Years ago, I took a group theory class for chemists, and, uh, the thing that I remember most clearly is that a baseball, because of the stitches, can be assigned to the point group D2D. 
So remember that at home because that might be on the final exam. Fascinating. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. Watermelon may have a Viagra-like effect. Story two, Mercury's core is shrinking. Story three, water boils faster in a copper pot that's lined with copper nanorods. And story four, to save energy, new models of the hybrid Prius won't have the option of a sunroof, which, when open, can cause drag and make the engine work harder. Time's up. Story one is true. Watermelon does indeed appear to have similar general physiological effects as Viagra, according to research out of Texas A&M. The key nutrient in question is called citrulline, which can relax blood vessels, which is how Viagra works. Most citrulline in watermelon is in the rind, but researchers are trying to breed melons with higher concentrations in the flesh. Story two is true. The recent flyby of Mercury gathered data that indicate that the core is shrinking. The core is mostly iron and makes up the majority of the planet. For more, check out J.R. Minkle's July 3rd article on our website entitled Mercury Flyby Reveals Active But Shrinking Core. And story three is true. Water does boil faster in a copper pot lined with copper nanorods. So say researchers who published in a nano journal called Small. The rods trap tiny air bubbles and the heated water can change to gas where it makes contact with the bubbles rather than becoming superheated and waiting for an opportunity to get to the surface to change to gas. All of which means that story four about Priuses doing away with sunroofs is totally bogus because reports surfaced on July 7th that Toyota is thinking of giving the Prius the first true sunroof a solar panel. The solar-generated wattage would only partially power the air conditioner. I'm waiting for the crank-powered onboard DVD player. Kids in the back seat want to watch SpongeBob. They should have to work for it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Cyan Podcast. Visit Cyan.com for the latest science news, blogs, and videos. And sign up for the Daily Digest at Siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>